Welcome to the Chuck Williams Show. A little different open today. Dylan Hanson, our outstanding director, has been dealing with a few issues, and he's gotten everything dressed right, dressed right now. So this is a this is going to be an interesting hour. Uh, I've never interviewed uh, her since she became my wife. Our guest tonight is Kathy Williams. Kathy and I've been married for almost eighteen years. Uh, Kathy uh, is like me, a public figure. I'm a journalist and a public figure. She is a member of the Muskogee, elected member of the Muskogee County School Board, and she is uh, president CEO of NeighborWorks Columbus. Um, glad you're here, babe. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> glad an opening allowed me to slip in. <laughs> well, this is one I've been kind of wanting to do, but I wasn't sure how to do it. So we're just going to do it. And I'm not sure you you know now. <laughs> Well, we're fixing to find out who's in charge, and it ain't me. Uh, this one is the Chuck Williams show is not about Chuck Williams. Well, it ain't about me tonight. But Kathy, uh, Kathy, and I met. Uh, go ahead and tell the story. I mean, you can you tell it better than well, I. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking about it today, trying to put some dates together. But I remember I did Tour de Tucson, which is a really really long bike ride in Arizona in two thousand. And if I'm not mistaken, we met the year before when I started training. And you were with a group of cyclists that sort of adopted me. Because I, I, had, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that this was a goal because it was supporting the Leukemia Association. So a very good friend of mine lost his daughter to leukemia. And I wanted to honor her. And so I wanted to do this ride for the Leukemia Association. So I sort of backed into this cyclist role. And this group of cyclists that you were included in sort of adopted me and, and, and started to teach me how to ride in these uh, endurance rides. And that's when I kind of got comfortable riding behind you on your cycle. More rolling wind tunnel. It is kind of, it's known as drafting. But for Chuck, it was far, far more, more profound than just a just drafting and so um you know we just we got to know each other and then uh, i did tucson and and then we started doing other rides and uh you know it's uh, i was working at the home builders association and actually that was before that was in 98 90, yeah. 98 yeah i think you oh, you, yeah. you had already run uh for school board, the first time you ran, you lost. Yes, I did. And then um, at the Home Builders Association, we started a committee to study affordable housing in Columbus. And we did it for a year. And after a year, we published a report for then city manager Carmen Caveza. And um, one of the, there were three goals. One was that a nonprofit be formed dedicated to the issue of elimination of substandard housing. The other was that from every pulpit and every podium in Muskogee County, everybody had to be on the same sheet of music. Everybody had to say, not here, not in Columbus, this is not acceptable. And then the third was for the banks to come together and, and form a consortium to help, to help um, give access to capital to this nonprofit. So Carmen Caveza uh, accepted the report with the City Council gave it back to me and said, now go do it. And so we took another year, so this would be 98, and we um, established the Columbus Housing Initiative. We became incorporated. We got our 501c3 status, and we formed a board. I was the president of the board, and we started looking for funding. 
And a local foundation stepped up and said, we will fund you for um, your operations for the first many years, but you have to take over leadership and you can't do two jobs anymore. So I said yes. And then all of a sudden you showed up at my office and said, I am here to figure out what's going on. I was given the assignment by uh, Mike Burbach, who was the editor back then. And Mike wanted to know the foundation was the Bradley Turner Foundation. I mean, I think that's pretty well known by now. But they wanted to know, they, Mike said, go find out why Mr. Turner gave Kathy Vaughn $6 million. And that was when I started covering your organization. And, did and then that, that same year, I started cycling. Yeah. And then that, that was, yeah, that was it. And then, you know, and I covered you for probably till 2003 and then figured out I probably shouldn't be covering <laughs> you anymore. And, and then the rest, I mean, we both were fairly recently divorced at the time and, you know, but you know, you, it's interesting because I had covered your organization, the startup of your organization and, you know, the first few years, y'all were in the ledger building when we yeah, had all that space right. in that tower. And, you know, and as I was covering that, I just, I got to know you and you got to know me and we kind of built a trust that, you know, I think it's probably the foundation of our marriage. I mean. That, and I'm, I'm going to go back to the cycling because you have to really trust somebody to be two inches away from their tire and you're both going 30, 31 miles an hour under the power of your legs, if you don't have that trust of that person in front of you, and the person in front has to trust the person behind, because many times the person behind can actually flip the person in front. So there is a real bond. And, and so, yeah, I think it was both both the coverage of the founda- founding of the, the organization as well as the cycling. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I honestly think that. When, when you and I, uh, we were married in December of, 2003 and I think a lot of people scratched their heads they didn't figure they couldn't figure it out (laughs) and you know but now we'll run into people that that don't know that we're married to each other they know both of us in our other role in our independent roles but I mean there's still people out there that haven't figured out that I guess some will figure it out I guess we're telling the world (laughs) yeah really um talk about you you didn't grow up in Columbus, but you kind of ended up in Columbus. Tell me the. So, um, well, you know, I, I I was I was born in uh, in Anaheim, California, and before I was six years old, I lived in um, Oregon, Detroit, Michigan, the Philippine Islands, and then uh, from Detroit we came to Boca Raton, Florida. My father in '63 was um, recruited out of Wayne. Wayne State University in Detroit to help start Florida Atlantic University. He and a whole cadre of of professors out of Wayne State and around the country uh, were brought to Boca to establish Florida Atlantic University. So it wasn't the Boca Ratona today, right? No, it had one stoplight. (laughs) I tell people that actually in 63 Camino Real was a dirt road, Mm. most of it. So no, it had an off-season it's a tour it's always been a tourist town maybe not so much anymore but back then the off-season population of Boca was 13,000 wow yeah 13,000 it was um it was just a sleepy little retirement community 
And FAU came in 63, and then I think in 64 or 65, IBM came and fundamentally changed Boca forever. It was a great place to grow up, though, because I, I went there from uh, second grade uh, through 11th grade and uh, watched Boca change, completely watched it change. Went to every public school in Boca before I left and grew up, you know, most of my elementary school years were on A1A. We lived one block from A1A, so the lifeguards were my babysitters and grew up in the ocean. And so, yeah, it was cool, you know, but in uh, 73, my uh, mother had, my mother and father had divorced and my mother remarried military. And so we got sent to Fort Benning, Georgia from Boca Raton High School. I went to Spencer. So Boca Raton to Spencer High School just the very early years of integration. Yes, that had to, very that, early. Yeah, I mean, because Spencer was integrated essentially by NCOs, kids in the military, right? Correct, yes. And my, my stepfather was an NCO. And um, Boca High had actually, the year before I, we moved, or it might have been you know, within the year that we moved, Boca High was on national news for riots because they were integrating Boca. And I went from an incredibly scary, volatile um, high school s- situation where we had riot police that uh, lined our, our hallways all day. They did weapon searches every morning of every car coming into the, uh, onto the campus uh, to, to Spencer High School, which was integrated and everybody, you know, for the most part got along. Sure, there was, there was as much friction at Spencer High in the 70s as there was in high schools today, there's going to be friction uh, in high schools. It's a, it's called hormones. You know, it wasn't as racially motivated as it was just part of growing up. But um, I remember that Isaiah Hughley was in my class, as were many city people. city manager. Many people who still live and, and, and still here, are here in Columbus. Um, but I remember I came here. to the, I came to this studio in 1975, I think it was, 74 or 75, and did an interview on uh, what, my experience from Boca to Spencer on the whole racial uh, situation. I was like, this is a cakewalk. You guys got it figured out here. I mean, NCO kids got along great with the kids in Columbus. And, we, you know, I made lasting friendships in that high school. So it was a it was a very good experience, but but that wasn't the brand new shiny Spencer of today. No, it was the it was the school that still sits on Shepherd um, Drive. Now it's uh, it's the um, alternative school at Mar- from Marshall. Um, Back in the day, there, was in, there a hog processing plant? Or? There was, a, yes, there was. There was a processing plant just next door to it, and we didn't have air conditioning, so on those hot September days um, when the wind was just right, uh, you couldn't breathe in class. Uh, you gagged. It was bad. And Columbus was not what it is today. It wasn't any way, shape, or form close to what it is today. It was, it was a backwards. In my opinion, I felt it was, um, you know, I'm not going to say what I used to call it, but it wasn't kind. And the day after I graduated from Spencer, I packed up my 1972 red Pinto, and I went back to Boca for college. And I spent um, a couple more years, you know, in college in Boca. My mother then, 
had moved to Germany, so I went to visit her. Loved it in Gelnhausen, Germany. Loved it. Got a job at uh, Central Texas College. In, Which is one of the first kind of schools that, it wasn't online then, but it was essentially. It was, it was an online school before online. Yeah. Yeah, and I worked in plant maintenance and operations and, um, you know, kind of made a life there and met a soldier, got married, and as soon as he got his orders, they they sent us back to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I said, okay, I give up. Came back in 1982 and have been here ever since, and you could not blow me out of this place. This is home. I love it. I brag about it. It is, it is an absolutely amazing community. And when I go back to Boca, I go, ooh. <laughs> so, how, so how did that happen, that this place that you couldn't wait to get out of has now become home? I mean, I guess. Well, um, part of it was, you know, I, I, when I came back, I, 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 I remembered something one of my teachers at Spencer said to me. And it was Miss Linda Skinner, and she taught me American government. Among she, There was a couple of courses she taught, but th in this one, which was the very one of the first courses I took when I came to Spencer, and I wasn't real happy about coming to Spencer and to, and to Columbus from Boca. I wanted to go home. I'm probably and, I probably go ahead and say what Miss Skinner said. Anyway, Miss Skinner said, "You know, Kathy, you 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 obviously love politics, and I do. I did. My father, that's his fault." And uh, she said, "You need to consider going into public um, office, public service." And I was like, huh, "Whatever," you know. <laughs> I was 17 years old, and somebody was telling me to go into public service. I was like, "No." But when I came back here in '82, I started to get involved in the community. And when my kids were born, I got very active in the PTA, and I started, you know, working lobbying um, at, in Atlanta for public education, for QBE, you know, for anything. QBE is quality basic education. It's the formula that allows the funding for our educational system. It's never been fully funded. <laughs> You know, but anyway, um, and so back in, you know, back then in the, I guess this would have been in the very early 90s, I was lobbying. Um, that's how I got to meet a good mutual friend of ours, um, Pete Robinson. When I went and lobbied him one afternoon on a Sunday afternoon, he said, Kathy, you know, you should consider public service. You, you should, you should, you have a passion for this. And he challenged me later to run for school board. And so that's kind of where I've settled. But, you know, it's just a matter of getting, one, involved in this community, getting to know the people in this community, and seeing how this community completely shifted their culture from this one of isolation, you know, the longest cul-de-sac in, in the world, because they chose not to I mean, be on in the 70, In 1979, there was not a four-lane highway in or out of Columbus. It was, a, it was a decision to stay off of the interstate system. And as a result, they were very isolated. And they went from that to, this isn't working for us. And to have leadership in a community collectively come to that understanding and then move that ship, you know, that, that takes a while. But they did. They started to um, intentionally move that ship into a more progressive mode. Uh, to begin to recruit new um, manufacturers and new industry. You started to see homegrown companies like Aflac, um, you know, really establish their presence here and say, this is our home. Instead, a, lo a lot of homegrown companies like an Aflac would have left and gone to an Atlanta to, to establish their 
worldwide headquarters, but they chose here. Total Systems chose here. You know, you had all the battery companies starting to look at us because of our water. You know, we had this excess water that was very attractive to, to manufacturing companies that needed that water. So there were so many um, great benefits to Columbus. And then you had this community that not only believed in the economic development po potentials, but believed in the people development potentials, who believed that the arts was critical to a quality of life that they wanted to see for everybody, not just for the wealthy, but for everybody. And so you, you started to see this um, collective culture of we, where people started to say, you know, substandard housing? I, that's the first time I've ever seen it, but that's unacceptable. We're going to change that. You know, the arts, uh, 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 the symphony, that, that can't just be for wealthy. We're going to start bringing in children who live in poverty in, in, in elementary school, and we're going to start introducing them to the arts early because that's going to impact the rest of their lives. And so you just saw this amaz amazing progressive thought process that moved this community from this very isolated mentality into this, no, we are as good as anybody, let us show you. And, and they have, they have in spades. And part of that was you had the philanthropic resources here and the mindset. Very I generous mean, community. You, you got to know in this process Bill Turner very well. Mr. Turner's the patriarch of a lot of what you see right now. I mean, passed away, I guess, six, five or six years ago. Who was the Bill Turner you knew? Uh, Mr. Bill was this um, delightful, uh, energetic, uh, compassionate, passionate, per passionate about this community, compassionate about everybody being included in the progress. It wasn't, it wasn't, it couldn't just be that, that Columbus was progressing. It had to be that everybody who lived in Columbus was progressing. So when, when, he, would, when he would make a commitment to something like um, you know, the three arts theater, or just arts in general, uh, he would make sure that there was a component to it that allowed for, for those who didn't have access to it, for those doors to open for them also. When he would make a commitment to his home church, he also would make a commitment to one of the largest African-American churches. When he made a commitment to ensure that there was progress within the Chamber of Com Commerce, he also made a commitment to make sure that there was progress in one Columbus, to make sure or that... Or the Urban League. Or the Urban League, you know, to make sure... That, that uh, you know, spread the wealth is easy to say, but he did it. He practiced that. He wanted to make sure that all of Columbus was, was benefiting from the progress that he was able to impact. And he believed in, he believed, you know, he believed strongly in keeping the money here. And they did. Yes, they did. And, and you can, there's, there's, not too many places that you can look and not see some form or fashion, his touch or that foundation's touch or those, those families, those trustees, would you, everybody. Would you say his vision? 
his vision, but it's not, it wasn't just his vision. You know, he, he knew where he wanted to go, but it took everybody to get on board. So it was a collective vision. Um, and, you know, I remember there were, there were pushbacks on some of his ideas, but he was also, um, he was pretty, he had a lot of tenacity and a little stubborn, and he just keep, when he had an idea, he would just keep at it. I remember one of the last times we sat down and really, really talked. He said, Kathy, I want to know what you think about this idea about public art in downtown Columbus. And I said, well, you know, I think that's a great idea. There's, there's a lot of cities that are doing it, you know, zoning for art. He said, yeah, I know. He said, but I want, I want like sculptures down here. I want a competition. It was years before we actually started to see it happen. And it took him just keep talking. Every person who would come in his office, he'd say, now, Chuck, what do you think about public art in downtown? <laughs> and there's been such buy-in recently. A piece of that original work, Mayflower, was stolen, and it became an outcry to try to find yeah. that statue of the little girl catching the raindrops with her mouth. And it's back now. And yeah. I mean, and you know, people don't realize, but that's part of his legacy. His legacy is is long. It's wide. It's deep. It's beautiful, and it 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 is Columbus. We'll talk about Columbus. You, you started the housing initiative. What 23, 20, You've been with uh, the with NeighborWorks Columbus, the housing initiative. Since. Well, we we uh, we went operational once we had the funding in November of nineteen ninety nine. I think it was. And the goal was to eliminate substandard housing. The vision is to eliminate substandard housing and improve the quality of life for all Columbus citizens. And we're 22 years into that now. I mean, substandard housing still exists in Columbus. How do you eliminate it? Well, it's like eliminating poverty. You're never going to do that. You know, it's, it is a vision, and it is always something that you reach for. And having something that um, almost unattainable keeps you driven. Uh, you know, it's, it, you can't eliminate so i had this conversation with millard fuller over dinner one night we had quite a debate over it because he was the founder of habitat yes and he had a tooth he had a i can't remember exactly what it was called but it was around the the turn of you know it was around y2k in 2000 and it was an initiative where communities were adopting this pledge to eliminate substandard housing and I said, well, you can't eliminate it. He said, sure you can, Kathy. You do a point-in-time count. You go around. We did it in America, so we counted 978 or whatever the number was, substandard units. And I said, yeah, but the day after you said that, not the 979th went into substandard condition. He said, well, I know, but you got you got to start and stop somewhere. So it's a philosophical debate, but anyway. Uh, so you can't ever really eliminate it like you can't eliminate poverty, but... Our mission is, is attainable. That is to provide access to fit and affordable housing for all of Columbus's citizens. You know, so housing, afford, affordability in housing, and, and, and it's relative. So what's affordable to you and I is totally different to what's affordable to a surgeon or to, you know, a, a, to a bus driver. It's, it's all relative to what you, you need. But the way we gauge it is 30%. If you pay more than 30% of your income to your housing needs, then you're housing vulnerable. And that means you're paying way more than you can afford. And so if your car breaks down or if your child gets sick and, and needs medication that's, that's not covered in your insurance or you're not insured, 
you're all of a sudden one foot ahead of the landlord because you're going to get evicted because you can't pay your rent. And we've got way too many people that are living in this housing vulnerable status that you know you drive around and you see all their belongings on the side of the road because they've been evicted. They didn't get out quick enough. And you've seen a lot in the news about the eviction crisis brought on by COVID. And well, it's I mean we're still under somewhat of a moratorium. Is a lot of people don't understand the moratorium, but that's a whole other hour. But but the the affordability issue is a crisis in Columbus. Housing is a crisis in Columbus. We have a housing crisis in Columbus. I mean, but, young people that but come I can to, only concentrate on affordability. But, I mean, young people that come here are having very difficult times finding affordable yeah, rental places for people that aren't in this. It's, uh, so, so when it comes to uh, what we, we work under the HUD, HUD, HUD guidelines of, uh, of income levels. So 100% of area median income today is around $56,000. Okay, that's for a family of four. So just sort of keep that in mind. So, 56. so that's the average income in Columbus. It's the area median income. So it's right in the middle there. It's not okay. average. It's median. So the median income around $56,000. Well, 80% of that is whatever, 48000 yeah. And you so down. So 100% area median income is kind of considerate moderate, moderate income. Anything below that is low income. So if you go down to 80% AMI, you're considered low income. If you go to 60, you're very low. If you go to 40, you're extremely low. So that's a scale that we often refer to uh, at or below AMI. Okay. So in Columbus, what is affordable, this is on the rental market, what is affordable and what is actually available, meaning I can go find that house that I can afford, the gap between those two numbers is over 14,000 units. That means over 14,000 families, whether it's a, a you know, family member one or four or eight, are looking for something they can either afford or they're paying too much for what they find. And if they're finding something they can afford more often than not, it's a slum property in a neighborhood you would not live but they don't have a choice, and that's wrong. And if Mr. Bill were still with us, he would say it's wrong too. When you look at that, I mean, Columbus has some of the wealthiest people in the country. We have some of the poorest. Poverty in this city shows up in a number of places. It shows up in crime. It shows up in housing. It shows up in the school systems. I honestly believe that housing lives at the intersection of every other social ill. Because if what do you, you mean? so so if you're not living in fit and affordable housing for what you can afford, right? If you are not living in fit and affordable housing, you are probably living in a neighborhood that has high crime. You're sending your kid. We can't teach kids in our classrooms if they're coming in from asthma attacks because of the mold in their slum property. We cannot teach our kids if they have to sleep on the floor because of the gunfire in their neighborhood. We cannot expect a parent to be able to raise that child the way you and I would have raised our children if they have to work two or three jobs in order to make that rent, and that rent still is unaffordable to them. And we have that. 
We have families doubled up, tripled up, just so that they can rotate their working day, their working hours to work around the clock so somebody's there to watch the kids. That's not healthy. That's not a healthy family life. And it starts with the affordability of housing. What we try to do at NeighborWorks is one of our goals is to just allow families to breathe, to get them into affordable housing that's that's single family. We believe strongly in single family. We have apartments too, but generally for the elderly. Strongly believe that the that, that kids want yards, that families want yards to raise their children in. Not everybody should have to raise their kids in an apartment if they're low income. And, and, and just allow them an opportunity to kind of breathe. And then they can start doing things like educational attainment, better health. I had one mother come to me in tears saying, this is the first week, one week, that my son hasn't had an asthma attack. And they moved into a new house. They had moved into one of our homes, and they had moved out of a shotgun house that was covered up with mold. It wasn't that the child had bad lungs. He was breathing mold spores in. You've been in some of the worst housing in the city as you've worked. In. I mean, how do you... How do you handle that? I mean, it breaks your heart, and sometimes you don't handle it well. I mean, I, I remember once I walked into um, uh, uh, Miss Mary's house. She was seven, I think she was 78 at the time. She re had um, recovered from colon cancer. She was a cottage, she was a cottage applicant, and I, I always did the first um, interview. The cottage was to tear well, her house down and rebuild something right. on that spot. It was for the elderly that we found in substandard housing. And I did the first interview with her, and I always did a cursory inspection just to have eyes on the unit. So I walked through a shotgun house, and uh, I came back out, and she was sitting on the couch. She always was sitting on the couch. And I said, Miss Mary, I didn't see your refrigerator. And she said, oh, baby, I haven't had one of those in years. Hadn't even had a refrigerator in years. She just would open a can of pork and beans or whatever she had that she would eat. So she, she didn't have running water. She would go out to the yard. She would fill a pail up from um, a, a hose next door, and she would bring it in, and that's what she'd use. It, I've seen that, that more than one time. That was less than two miles from where we're sitting, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was in Midtown. You know, it, it's the, the poor in our community are often invisible. You drive down the road. If you'd driven by Miss Mary's house, you would not have known what she was living in. That is very often the case. You can't tell from the outside that the roof is falling in in the back or that there's mold everywhere or that the floor has collapsed. You know, people are proud and they're not necessarily going to invite you in to see that. Usually we find our, our residents living in that because a church calls us or a neighbor or a family member calls us and says, I really need you to intervene on this. But because they're proud, they don't want you to know that they're living like that. I guess this is a good time to ask this. What's the difference in your organization and Habitat? I know there's a... I mean, it's, uh, it's often, <laughs> it's almost always, oh, you're like Habitat. No, we're nothing like Habitat. Habitat is a wonderful organization, and we partner with them all the time. And Louise Hurlis is a terrific executive director. But we're completely different. At the end of the day, we're both housers, and we both, we both serve a lower-income a lower population. 
But but one of the ways to look at it is so you have um, you have the uh, housing authority, public housing, that that's there to really serve the lowest income families and individuals who just don't have any way to get into any other decent housing. Then above that, for people who really want their own homes, is Habitat. And then above that, so now we're about 80% AMI. We work in the strata of about 80 to 100% AMI, except for when we do intervention. And that's for the elderly. So then we bring into a whole different toolbox for that. So, but for families, so we have three constituencies, basically, at NeighborWorks Columbus that we try to impact. One is our low-income veterans. My connection to the military as a military brat and a military wife for a long time, um, there's just, there's something that gets inside of you about military, you know, and what we owe, the debt we owe to the men and women who have served in our military to protect and serve us, that, um, that we shouldn't allow any, any veteran to live in substandard housing. So that's one we really get aggressive about. And the second is elderly, um, vulnerable, elderly, low income that are living in substandard housing because we think it's unacceptable. And then the third and the largest constituency that we serve on a daily basis is, um, is, is families with children in our schools because that's our next generation. That is the next generation that is going to be leading this community that's going to be leading our businesses and is going to be looking after me in the nursing home and and going to be teaching my grandchildren and so we want to get them off on the right foot so those are the constituencies that we work the most with and because we can't do everything one of the things your organization neighbor works columbus is doing right now is essentially a rebuild on fourth Avenue, which is fourth Avenue. It's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of, of you. I mean, the I drive through there with you. some. I just drive through it sometimes on my own, but fourth Avenue, for those of you that are kind of trying to place it is if you're coming down second Avenue from the, from Jer Allen, fourth Avenue is right there at 38th street, right? 38, 35th, 38, 35th. It's the all- best way to describe it is there's two lights on 2nd Avenue in the Bibb City area. One's at 35th and one's at 38th. So if you turn away from the river and go two blocks, you'll be uh, on you'll see 4th Avenue between 35th and 38th. 4th Avenue was one of the highest crime areas in this town. It was the highest number of 911 calls to come out of that census tract, which is the second highest Crime rate census tract in Columbus. And, I mean, I covered a murder trial a few weeks ago that was in one of the, was in the area that you were doing. But tell, I'm not going to do it justice. So tell me what y'all are doing. I mean, well, <laughs> it's um, phenomenal. Well, no, it, it, and it, it didn't start with us. This was such a collective uh, effort. So um, there is a group of citizens that brought, came together and formed the Mill District Board, and I was blessed to be on that board. And they started to really study, and this came out of uh, Teresa Tomlinson's initiative to look at city mills and the river. And so one of, one of my mantras during that process was you're never going to impact 
the west side of Second Avenue, if you don't impact the east side of Second Avenue, because the east side was where you had the highest poverty, the highest crime, the highest, I mean, almost desperation, because the mills had closed. It was just a mill area. It's an area they refer to as North Highland. North Highland, that is correct. It had a high drug problem, prostitution, not as much gang activity as it was just drugs and all the ills that came along with that. And what was a little different North Highland from some of the other poverty pockets in Columbus is it was mixed race. I mean, it was was very much mixed. Um, Yeah, it was, it, it still is. I mean, it's a very diverse, it's always been a very diverse population racially, um, but it's always had one thing in common, and that was poverty. It was very, very impoverished. It's what, it's what's called um, a a highly distressed census tract, and that means that according to the census, it, that means it's got it's got high unemployment, high vacancy, high poverty. You put all these things together, and it's highly distressed, difficult to develop. Is another a DD a DDT, a difficult to develop tract, or a highly distressed tract. So those are the hardest places. And, and, you know, one of the things the federal government did out of the Trump administration was that they recognized that these difficult to develop and highly distressed areas needed investment. And so they created the opportunity zones to try to get investment into these areas. But Columbus did it without that. I mean, they saw it and they realized that what they wanted to see on the west side of 2nd Avenue with development really did need to be impacted first by the east side. And so a group of philanthropists came together, approached us and said, can you do something if we pick this worst block, this worst, you know, it's actually two and a half blocks. If we pick this worst street, can you do something? And I said, you know, if we, if we raise the money and put the tools together, we can. And they did. And, you know, it's often the case when you give people with means a vision they will see it through, and they did. And so we were able, uh, most of the property had been abandoned. Uh, it was vacant, and what was left, um, one, I, I remember the first place we bought was on the corner of 35th and 4th Avenue. Cozy Corner. <laughs> yes, Cozy Corner. And when I went in to talk to Chief Bourne then, and I said, well, you know, we were, I was explaining to him what we were getting ready to do. I said, well, we've purchased, um, we've purchased, cozy corner and he said Kathy I can tell you stories of when I patrolled in the 70s about cozy corner so this was a notorious area so we bought the that and we bought the substandard housing next to it and we demolished it and so we had this you know we had a handle on the property we had ownership scale of the property and then we started looking for the capital because it wasn't going to be easy we were able to bring a new tool to Columbus that had never been deployed um, in Columbus called New Market Tax Credits. And that allowed us to get $7 million in tax credits that allowed our investor to put equity into the, into the um, development. See, this about, is where you lose me. This I know, I swear I lose you, everybody. Their eyes glaze over. But, but the equity that the investor, what, so the investor makes this investment in this difficult area. And, and the IRS says there's value to that. So over uh, seven years, that investor gets to take the value of their investment off of their bottom line taxes. Is that an institutional investor? It can be institutional, it can be individual. But okay. most of the time, what we're seeing is banks. 
institutional, large corporations, Wall Street. I don't care where it comes from. It puts equity into the deal, and that's what makes it work. Because So for this street, it was $7 million. It was a $7 million tax credit project. We brought in $3 million in debt. We raised a million dollars in the community. So it was an $11 million development. So what did you get for $11 million? We got 32 homes, either brand new, most, I think 90% of them are new, and then seven or eight were rehabbed. And uh, we, um, we hit it at a time where uh, construction prices escalated to un- unbelievable numbers. I mean, I, it was awful. But because we had this equity, we were able to hold our prices affordable and pass that equity on to our low-income buyers. And as a result, we have this incredibly beautiful street that is diverse, and, uh, and it's diverse in every way. I'm talking about racial uh, socioeconomic, um, I'm talking about uh, the just <laughs> everything across every line is diverse. You have, you know, I have two gentlemen that, that lived in the Ralston living next door to an active duty captain who lives next door to an employee at Walmart for 21 years who lives across the street from a doctor. You know, it's, it's just this beautiful, beautiful um, mosaic that has built this social fabric and everybody looks out after each other and it's just amazing. Every house, we have three houses left of the 32 that we prov- provided the community. So all of, the, all of them but three are sold? All of them but three are sold. Will those three sell before the end of the year? They all sell before the end of next week. They're what not are, even what? finished. The what last three are, t- are so just what's being the, finished. What's the sale price for those? So they range from, I want to say, and, and I'm going to have this off a little bit um, because we had to change our prices a couple of times. But I want to say our lowest was around 121 and the highest was 165 For a brand new house, two, three. Most of them are brand new. On that street, two are, two are rehabbed. What's been, I mean, they're very close to Fox Elementary. What's been the reaction from Dr. Scarborough, the principal there, and and sort of what's happened? Dr. Scarborough is on the Mill District Board as well, so I I get to talk to her often. And, um, you know, the Mill District is composed of four historic neighborhoods. So you have City Mills, Bibb City, uh, North Highland, and Anderson Village. We work in Anderson Village and, and North Highland. Um, predominantly, but the mill district is all four of them, and Fox serves the whole district. So, um, she, I mean, they love it. They take their new teacher prospects through it. They see it changing. They see new kids coming in. But as a result of everything, the synergy that has occurred in this space called the mill district, uh, it, it caught the attention, it was brought to the attention of purpose-built communities. And in very short order, we were the, the Mill District was named a purpose-built community. And that brings... What does that mean? So it's, it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy of neighborhood revitalization. And neighborhood revitalization is very difficult. We've been doing it for over 20 years, but it's difficult. But purpose-built community has a model. And it's a lot easier to take a model to a community and, and, help, and help it fit rather than reinventing the wheel. So it brings capacity, it brings uh, organization, it brings structure. And what they've settled on is that revitalization is a three-legged tool. 
And those three legs are education, health, and housing. So in the Mill District, you have Fox Elementary, now known as a purpose-built community school. You have NeighborWorks Columbus. We have both the Highland Homes on 4th. And we have That's Highland. That's the older community. No, right? Highland Homes on Fourth. They're the single-family homes. Highland Terrace okay. is 103 senior apartments that we have on the others on the River Roadside, and then we have about a dozen Anderson Village cottages for low-income elderly. So that's the, we're the housing component, along with Truth Springs, who also ha- does some acquisition and rehab in the community. That's Kerry and Rob Strickland. That's, that's correct. And then you have Mercy Med on the health side, who serves the Mill District low-income families with um, you know prescription meals, uh, very low-cost, if any cost, medical support, education. They have a clinic at Highland Terrace at our apartments. Um, so those three together is what really is critical to turn a community around because it's not excluding anybody. It's, cl- it's including everybody. So it takes a village. It takes a village, absolutely. We're getting toward the end of the hour. We're not there yet, but we're getting close. And, you know, I want to talk about your passions are obviously housing and education. Where do they intersect well, I mean, housing and education, I, you know, <laughs> when I started the very first, so, okay, wow. Uh, in 1989, Dateline NBC came to Columbus, Georgia, and unbeknownst to anybody, they filmed the corner of Ninth and Benner in, in East Winton Park. Just down from Carver High School. That is correct. From then Carver High School. Yeah. And on national TV, they named it the most drug-infested, dangerous corner in America. And that was, a, that was an awakening to a lot of the leaders in Columbus. They, they just were stunned. And so we did an inner city visit uh, where the chamber usually takes a group of leaders off to great places to look at and steal from and bring home. And we got the River Walk and the River Center. We got lots of tons of stuff, but we got the Arts Center I and mean, the Arts uh, uh, school, just so many things come from those visits. They're, they're, they're so beneficial. But this year, Evelyn Turner Pugh, then uh, Evelyn Turner said, let's stay home and let's look at what we've got here in Columbus. I want to say it was 1992 or 93 when we did this. And we, we drove the buses. Was that the good, bad, and ugly? Yes, the good, bad, and ugly tour. And we took those buses full of bank presidents and foundation chairs and um, the just people who generationally lived in Columbus and lived well through East Winton Park, and I watched people who have literally lived in this community forever, mouths drop open, and they said, I had no idea. So when we were formed, the first community we were asked to do was East Winton Park. So we started in neighborhood revitalization on 8th Street, just down from Carver High School. And back then, for those who don't remember, when it rained really hard, Carver High School had sewage that would go down the hallways, and almost every classroom leaked because it was an ignored school. And it made me mad because there's no way I could ask people to invest in homes where you had this horrendous substandard school they they were going to send their kids to. And that's 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 why my board then early on said, yes, they intersect. You can't, you can't revitalize. You can't 
impact housing, if you can't impact the neighborhood school, and we were committed in this community to neighborhood schools. And so they go hand in hand. I mean, like I said, you can't educate a child who comes out of out a slum property. It's very difficult. It's just very difficult. And you can't expect a child to, you know, excel to their natural abilities if they're you know, if they're fighting substandard housing at home, if they're living in dangerous situations. So there is a true intersection. And in some areas, you have homeless students in this district, right? We have a, a large population of homeless in this, in this community, very large. A lot, of, a lot of communities actually send their children, their homeless children, to Muskogee County. We have a very large population. They live in group homes. They double up. Um, during the war, we had a, a, a sad number of homeless military dependents that were living with friends or living with aunts or, you because know. Because their parents were deployed. Because both of their parents were deployed. Wow. Yeah, I mean, we, we deal with everything in public education. We take every child that walks through our doors as they come. It doesn't matter what <clears throat> their abilities or their disabilities are. It doesn't matter if they're driving forces athletics or art or or academic or if they're autistic it doesn't matter we serve every child because we believe that they have a god-given ability to attain the highest that they can if given the opportunity and the problem is we don't we don't do enough to allow that opportunity to really shine do you think Public education Public education can be difficult because you do take it's all comers. Very difficult. I mean, and COVID has made it more difficult. It's made education in general more difficult. It's been it's been a it's been a very difficult two years. The whole time I've known you It's been heartbreaking. The whole time I've known you, you've had great. You've always had great respect for educators. I mean, you, some of you, some of your best friends are educators. I mean, what has COVID done to your respect for the the teachers that go in and out every day? They're my heroes. Period. I don't know. I honestly don't know how they do it. I mean. These are, um, these are mothers and fathers, husbands and wives that give everything they can to their children, to their students, and then come home and give it to their own families. I mean, they, they stay up all night. They, they did just purely heroic tasks in teaching children on a, on a camera and trying to reach them and trying to get them to connect. And they were on the phone with kids when the internet would go down and they would report seeing something that scared them for a child. I mean, they didn't just, they didn't just teach Johnny how to read. They taught Johnny how to be and how to be important to somebody. And, and they, they, they are so often that one connection that that child has that that child believes in. I mean, teachers are phenomenal. They are. They are. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Well, this hour has flown by. I guess I'm going to turn the tables. We never even got to talk about the tax freeze. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's probably a good thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things in this town that, you, you know, you you probably are a subject matter expert on the tax freeze and, and have done have done white papers on it and stuff. But, you know, I guess we'll turn the tables now. <laughs> uh, this ought to be interesting. This is something I actually do know is coming. Uh, so ask me a question. All right. I've thought about this a lot. Right. This is where it goes bad. What do my Miami Dolphins have to do to win? Should have kept Nick Saban. Um, uh, oh, don't even go there. <laughs> we're, we're you. My wife is a huge Miami Dolphins fan. Growing up in South Florida, she loves her fans. You have to answer the question now. Do not, do not divert. I, I, I don't think they can win. To be honest, well, they played. They beat the Falcons Saturday night, so that in a preseason game, I guess that counts. But you know. It's, it's, is it the quarterback? Is it that it's always position? The, it's always the, well, you got two of us, so that you ought to be fine there. This is uh, this is some of our conversations at the house now. You're seeing you're seeing that. I mean, I'm more concerned about the Braves than the Dolphins or the Falcons right now. But uh, you know, and you know that it's interesting because you are a huge Dolphins fan. I mean, you know, we got Dolphins blankets all around the house. Fins up. Fins up. <laughs> you know, and, it, it, and it's interesting because you were a Dolphins fan, greasy. My parents were season ticket holders in 1963 and 64 and on. Wow. Yeah. So, so. they, they uh, Don Shula and Kick and Sonka and Warfield and Greasy and, oh, uh, man. those were. The, I was there in 72 when we went undefeated all the way through preseason to Super Bowl. It was Pretty cool. <laughs> Very. You cool. don't ever forget that. No, no. Well, it hasn't been done since. So, well, our guest, <laughs> our guest is, our guest has been Kathy Williams. Kathy is uh, my wife, among other things. That's probably the that's the least of her accomplishments. Whatever. Uh, um, she is on the Muskogee County School Board, also CEO of NeighborWorks Columbus, and I'm very, very proud of you. I mean, I don't say it enough. I mean, and you know, because of conflicts of interest in journalism. We didn't even talk about that. And well, Ooh, we keep it separate. Yeah, we do. We definitely, we definitely do. Well, uh, as usual, Dylan Hansen has been our director, and you know, I wasn't sure we were going to have a show. I walked in because... <laughs> I normally see Dylan sitting here with everything, and all I could see was Dil Dylan's hiney sticking out from under the desk. And I was like, "Oh, oh, this isn't good." Hey, I watched. <laughs> I watched him. I watched him do miracles. I'm very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> well, I want to thank Kathy for being here today, and you know, now let's do the social media part of this, so you can see the show Tuesday night, seven to eight. I think we've now got a pretty good library of 23, 24 shows. Uh, you can also catch it on um, Apple, Spotify, and what else? iHeart. iHeart. So the, you can get a podcast version of this. You can go listen to previous shows on those on those platforms. And, you know, I've had some good interviews in, with some city leaders and just normal folks over the last five months, four months. So delve into the library if you're just now watching and see it. Obviously, we have a social media presence on my wife will tell you I'm always on social media. Always. 
<laughs> uh, at Twitter at Chuck Williams, uh, Facebook at Chuck or Chuck Williams WRBL, and then on Instagram Chuck Williams zero nine nine nine. I use all three of those uh, those platforms for very different reasons. Twitter is kind of a feed for stories. Facebook, some degree, and then Instagram. If I see a cool picture of a rose in the historic district, I'll post it on Instagram. So follow us there. Thanks for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. Uh, we'll be back next week. And as usual, I try not to make this about Chuck Williams because it's, my name's on the show, but I like to talk to people who are very interesting. And I'm really glad that Kathy joined me tonight. Now we'll get in the car and go home. Uh, thanks for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. See you next week.